You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, an LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist and an LLS volunteer. I'd like to thank all of you so much for joining us for this episode. The last 20 years has seen tremendous progress in the treatment of cancer in general, but I have to say it has been remarkable the amount of progress that's been made in treating patients with CML. And I think like many hematologists and oncologists, after the landmark discoveries in CML, I think there was a hope and a wish that the same would happen with other diseases. And thankfully, slowly it is happening. But the progress in treating patients with CML truly has been amazing. And today we're really going to focus on that and talk about both the treatment of CML, uh, but also quality of life issues and cancer survivorship. And to do this, I am very fortunate to be joined by Dr. Allison Lauren, who's an associate professor of medicine and the vice chair for faculty development in the Department of Medicine as well as the director of the blood and marrow transplant cell therapy uh, program at the Raymond and Ruth Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. Allison, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Allison, I wanted to start out by asking you, it's going to sound like a very basic question, but with today's level of understanding, what is CML? Now, CML is a form of cancer of the blood. It's actually thought to be a cancer of blood stem cells, which are the very early precursors that live in the bone marrow and go on to create all of the blood cells. And its hallmark is an abnormality that's known as the Philadelphia chromosome. It's called that because it was actually discovered at the University of Pennsylvania, my employer, in 1951, I believe, by Peter Noel and his graduate students. This is a translocation between chromosomes 9 and 22, that create a fusion gene that leads to an abnormal protein that's called BCR-ABLE. The fusion gene is called BCR-ABLE. And essentially, it makes the ABLE kinase constitutively activated. It's constantly on and ultimately through a series of steps that drives the cells to be continuously growing and dividing, which is obviously the main uh, indicator of cancer. And so it results in people typically having a very high white blood cell count, often with the full range of myeloid maturation visible in the blood, even down to blast. Sometimes patients can have either a high or a low platelet count and also may have normal high or low hemoglobins depending on the degree of marrow involvement and other things that may be going on. So I'm going to share briefly a story. Years ago, one of my first patients was a woman named Gussie who I treated, who was diagnosed with CML. It was chronic phase, and we were using interferon at the time, and she eventually went into remission, meaning the Philadelphia chromosome was gone and undetectable on several occasions. And then, actually, she started developing an allergy to interferon, and so we took her off. She was sort of lost to follow-up for a number of years and then came back perfectly well, now a woman in her 80s, uh, late 80s, actually, And we did a PCR, and sure enough, there was still a very small amount of positivity on the PCR test. So I wanted to ask you, based on that, uh, we think of CML as a chronic disease, but one that can become acute. Can people live with CML with this clone? 
You know, that's a really interesting story. I mean, the, the short answer is yes. So it's important to remember that before we had really effective therapies for CML, as you point out, the choices used to be essentially interferon or kind of ineffective and unpleasant therapies like oral busulfan or allogeneic bone marrow transplant for people who are young enough and fortunate enough to have a donor. And for people who were not treated, they would on average live for three to five years, and then they would progress to the acute phase of the disease, as you referred to, known as blast phase or blast crisis. So just remembering that, you know, people can live for three to five years with the Philadelphia chromosome is definitely a thing. And then there's lots of people who are on very effective therapies now, the tyrosine kinase inhibitors or TKIs, who may not have a complete remission, meaning there's still detectable Philadelphia chromosomes in there blood or their marrow, but they can live very, really normal lives in many cases. But untreated, I would not advise somebody to sort of hang out with a Philadelphia chromosome detectable in their blood. And, you know, your patients are really interesting conundrum, you know, at that advanced age, having lived all that time off of therapy, risks and benefits of initiating TKI therapy at an advanced age is a really interesting question. What did you decide to do? I'm curious. Thanks for asking. I didn't do anything. And uh, we monitor uh-huh. it essentially twice a year now. And she still has, I can still detect it on the PCR, but she's perfectly happy and healthy and in stable disease. Fascinating. As a related question, what do we know about how our own immune system may respond to CML? And, you know, are there some natural defenses that may be helpful in keeping the disease in check? That's a great question, and actually was sort of thinking about that as you were telling your story, that clearly the interferon had some type of long-term impact on her immune system such that it must have been able to keep that clone in check, not to eradicate it, but obviously to keep it stable for all that time is, is actually really fascinating. And actually one of the really interesting findings, and I know we probably will touch on this a little bit later, but the patients who are attempting a treatment-free remission You know, in the United States, we don't tend to do this very often, but in Europe, many patients are treated with both a tyrosine kinase inhibitor and interferon, or a TKI and RSC. And it seems that those patients who have had those dual therapies, and particularly those patients who have had some exposure to interferon, may have a higher likelihood of remaining in remission after discontinuation of their TKI. So there's no question that there's clearly some immunity from the patient that's able to become active and help at least manage or control the disease. And of course, allogeneic bone marrow transplant is the ultimate immunotherapy where we essentially, you know, the goal really is to replace the, obviously to replace an unhealthy marrow with a healthy one, but secondarily, or maybe not so secondarily, the other goal, of course, is to replace the immune system with a donor immune system that has the ability to recognize and eradicate the cancerous cells, those expressing the Philadelphia chromosome. So there's no doubt that the immune system is really essential in that our ability to manage and even cure the disease. So, you know, obviously we think now about starting people on a TKI. I wanted to ask you if you could talk about that experience, both from the clinician's point of view and, and what you see from the patient's point of view. They come into the doctor, their primary care physician told them that they have a high white count. What happens then, and what is that first meeting like between you and the patient, and and then what happens subsequently? Yeah, it's actually a really interesting and difficult conversation, I find. And some of this is perpetuated a little bit by so much good news in the media and online. I mean, there's lots of really good news stories about managing CML. 
And so it can be a very confusing message. You know, patients here, you have leukemia, which is, of course, terrifying and should be terrifying. It's a very serious diagnosis. But then they're also told, oh, but you know what? Now there's just a pill and you take a pill every day and it's fine and you're going to be fine and it's no big deal. They get told they have the good kind of cancer, which just drives me bananas when I hear that because I think it's so hard for patients to cope with it. And then to be told that it's almost like it's, you know, minimizing their distress. And I think for a lot of patients, it's pretty complicated. You know, a lot of people, I find many patients, especially the younger ones, haven't really been sick a day in their lives. And so the idea of having to take a pill every single day forever is, forgive the bad pun, a big pill to swallow. And I think we sort of forget that CML doesn't always go well. There are lots of people who have difficulties obtaining or tolerating the TKI, or it doesn't work for them, and then they end up needing a transplant. And so to be on this kind of roller coaster of, oh, this is the good kind of leukemia, no problem, you're going to take a pill, and then a year later, oh, just kidding, you actually need a bone marrow transplant is actually a big, it's really difficult for people to adjust to this. And I think it's also hard for their loved ones to adjust to this kind of new world and living with a chronic illness, being dependent on very expensive drugs. It's a very scary time and pretty murky and not the same as being told you have breast cancer, it's going to be six months of chemo and this many weeks of radiation, we're going to have surgery and then you'll be done. Like there's no done with CML, you're never done. Right, right. I want to ask you first from the medical standpoint, and then I'm really interested also from the non-medical standpoint, the psychosocial and spiritual and financial, but let's talk about it, uh, making choices on therapy. So we had interferon and then we've had Gleevec for years, and now all of a sudden there's a lot of choices. How do you make those decisions with the patient in terms of which one to choose? Yeah, that's a, a really interesting and difficult question. And it does require some nuance. I think, you know, the fact that these drugs are sort of prescribable and you can pick them up at your local pharmacy tends to make it feel like it's a really easy decision, but I don't think it's easy at all. I think the most important thing is to take account of the person who's in front of you. What are their other medical issues? You know, if they have known um, pulmonary disease, COPD or something like that, you might want to stay away from dasatinib. If they have known cardiovascular disease or brittle diabetes, maybe nilotinib isn't the best choice. There's a lot of different ways to think about this. And there are um, several drugs that are approved for first-line use. And I will be honest, and this may not be the most popular answer, but my first choice almost always is imatinib for a few reasons. One, as you know, it's been around the longest. FDA approved in 2001. We have 20 years of safety data on the drug, and we know it's a really safe drug for most people for the long term. Second, very effective. You know, somewhere around 60 or 70% of patients will achieve excellent molecular control of their disease. And it's not clear whether there's a survival advantage to the more potent drugs, which do induce higher rates of molecular remissions, but have not yet shown a long-term survival advantage. Another thing I like about imatinib is that its side effect profile is pretty manageable. Other than, you know, there's sort of edema and some GI stuff in the beginning and rashes, but the vast majority of people kind of power through those first few months and, and end up tolerating the drug pretty well. There, there's certainly exceptions. Some people really don't do well with it, but many people, you can really get them through it. As opposed to some of the more severe side effects that you can see with the other medications, like pleural effusions with the satinib, you know, that's not something a patient can kind of just get through. They need interventions for that often. 
Right. And then another reason that I really like imatinib is that it's generic now. And so it's much more affordable for a lot of patients and for people who are looking at a lifetime of therapy to be able to use a generic drug is really helpful. And the last thing I wanted to mention is that there is very clear guidance, including from, you know, national guidelines that really give you sort of a good branch point. You know, you can try imatinib for three months and if patients haven't achieved a less than 10% CCR able by IS testing, then you switch at that point. So to me, there's little to no downside to starting with a safe, long-standing drug that is generic and works well for most people. And you know what, after three months, if they're not responding, you have an opportunity to change at that point. So that's my personal preference. Again, I know there's lots of people who may disagree, and there are situations that, you know, you may choose a different drug. If it was a young woman who was interested in a pregnancy in the near term, that's a reason to choose a more potent drug to try to get them into molecular remission faster so that then they may be able to attempt a pregnancy after coming off of the TKI. So it needs to be obviously individualized, but generally I prefer imatinib as a first choice. So my understanding is you have a really good way of describing this, how to choose which drug. Sure. I always I tell my patients the same thing. I say that these drugs are like the people you went to high school with. There are certain characteristics that they all share, and then there are their own little personality quirks that you have to get to know with each of the drugs. And so, I mean, I guess to take the analogy maybe too far, you know, if you have a friend that you want to set up on a date, you have to think about the personalities of each of the drugs because obviously this could be a date that could last a lifetime. You sort of want to pick something that's going to be agreeable to that person. Right, right. I think that's a wonderful example. So again, we've started therapies. Someone has learned their diagnosis and they're on the way through therapy. What is that journey like for patients? What do patients tell you about, you know, the change in their life and adjusting to it and that part of their experience? Yeah, I think actually this is an area where, again, the LLS has been incredibly powerful and helpful as a great support to our patients. I actually refer a lot of them to, or really all of them, to the LLS's support mechanisms, whether they're support groups or education sessions or just information online. I think it really helps people to understand that they're not alone in this. I think, you know, talking to other people who have been through it and kind of can normalize a lot of what they're going through is really important. I think that it's hard for them. And, you know, in the beginning, especially the side effects can be difficult. It's hard for them to know, you know, what, you know, is this going to be like every day or is this just the beginning? And there's just so much unknown out there. Am I going to respond? Is this going to work? You know, how do I know what the right path is going to be for me? There's a lot of uncertainty and, and fear, I think, in the beginning. And then there's always, you know, the difficulties of having to adjust doses. People become cytopenic or their liver enzymes are abnormal and we have to hold the drug and reduce the drug. And that, that can be hard for people, too. And again, you know, I think in the beginning, just about everybody needs some type of extra, right? It's very unusual that you start somebody on one of these drugs and don't hear from them for six weeks True. until you do your first symptom check, right? There always, there's right. always management that needs to happen, whether it's side effects or blood counts or insurance or, you know, emotional support. It's a lot in the beginning. So I have to say that it's a reminder to me that, you know, uh, so much of our therapies have switched from intravenous to oral, especially in this last 20 years. And that uh, you're absolutely correct that managing the toxicities and managing even the uh, psychosocial side of therapy is equally as uh, as important and perhaps some, in its own way a little more difficult. Yes. So. Yeah, I think that's actually the hardest part. And one of the things that I tell every single patient is this medicine works incredibly well, but it only works if you take it. 
It doesn't work if it's sitting on your shelf. And the way to get your patients to take their medicine is to support them, emphasize how important it is, tell them it's life-saving, which it is. We know that in countries with socialized medicine where the drugs are not so costly, overall survival is longer. Obviously, that's some extrapolating, but we know that cost can be a major factor in why people don't take their medicine. Side effects are a major reason why people don't take their medicine. I've had patients tell me that, you know, when they wake up and they don't feel well, they decide maybe I'm not going to take my medicine today. And when you really drill down on that, like how many days a week is it that you wake up feeling bad and don't take your medicine? And they'll say, oh, three days a week. I'm like, well, that's half your drugs. Like that's That's half your dose right there. Let me share the story of another patient with you. This is a woman named Leslie. She's 72 years old now. I started her on Gleevec. This is probably about eight years ago. And we started at 600 milligrams, then went to 400, then to 300, and all because Mm -hmm. of tolerance issues. And she really didn't want to try another drug. Her PCR, the BCR ABLE, is still very, very minimally positive. So what do we do in that situation? Again, the patient's basically saying, I don't want to switch to another drug. What do we do in the situation where there's minimal positivity, but it's still there? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think some of it depends on the goals for the patient. So, you know, if the patient is saying, I hate this medicine and I want to stop it someday, Mm -hmm. then you have to chase it to zero, right? That's obviously anybody who's continually positive is not eligible for a treatment-free remission trial. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if they feel comfortable with the drug and they're tolerating it okay and they have very low-level PCR positivity, there's no evidence that somebody with a major molecular response, you know, greater than three log reduction in the long run is going to do better than somebody with a complete molecular remission, like an undetectable BCR able. So if you're not interested in coming off the drug, which actually, I don't know what your experience is, and a lot of my patients are not interested. They're very scared to stop. They're tolerating it well. It's affordable for them. They kind of Mm -hmm. don't want to break it if it's not broken already. Right. And, you know, if they're comfortable where they are, I don't think, you know, there's an old expression in surgery that you shouldn't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And I think that that is sometimes applicable, and it really just depends on knowing your patient and their goals and what's valuable to them. I don't know how you've approached that. And I feel the same way. Obviously, like everything else in life, what a spectrum of differences between patients we take care of, people in general. But there are some patients who are very noncompliant, even when taking a medicine like this, which is such a life-saving medicine. And there's other people that really don't want to stop. So, and I absolutely agree with you. I want to ask you about stopping therapy. In your experience, approximately what percentage of patients do you eventually stop therapy? How do you decide who they are? How do you monitor them? And uh, do you have some patients that are out now several years or longer without therapy? I've attempted discontinuing in just a handful of patients because, as I said, I think a lot of them are pretty comfortable on their medicine and they don't want to have to worry about it. The monthly BCR-ABLE testing is pretty intrusive for most people. You know, they're trying to work and live their lives, and it's actually easier to stay on their medicine and get their sort of quarterly testing. But I do have a few patients, and several of them are doing really well. But it's uh, it's a hard decision. I think um, one of the things that's challenging is that there's several different sets of guidelines out there about how long they have to be undetectable and you know, whether they've been on more than one TKI or if this is their first TKI, there's a lot of different considerations out there. 
So it's not easy, but I do counsel people who really don't like being on it that, you know, it's a reasonable thing to try it. A few years ago, I was much less comfortable with it than I've become now. I think there's definitely a subgroup of patients who can successfully come off. If you had your druthers, would would you really just keep patients on it indefinitely? Well, it definitely gives me less chest pain to (laughs) have on their drug when I know it's working. But I would say that, again, it really is up to the patient and their goals. You know, certainly for young people who are, can, young women who are considering a pregnancy, that's a situation where they have to come off. And for other patients, if they're having difficulties with side effects or cost, then I think those are really good reasons to come off. Some people just don't like the idea of having to take a pill every day. Their image of themselves, they don't like to think of themselves as a sick person. And this causes them to think of themselves that way. And so it becomes important to them from like how they consider themselves. And I think that's a really important reason to discontinue if it's possible. It's interesting. The psychology of discontinuation is pretty interesting. Uh, It is. Please say more. Anything else you want to share about it? Yeah, I think the other thing that I have found a little confusing, and I'm not sure, I'm interested how you grapple with this. There's some suggestion that, you know, it may be a single positive VCR able, you know, most of us, would just go ahead and restart the patient. But there's a few people out there who I think are sort of saying, well, let's get a second one before we jump back on the bandwagon and it'll go back down and people will then end up being able to stay off. I don't know if you've had experience with that. I haven't seen a lot published about this. I have to admit, I haven't, uh, I have not stopped anyone's therapy yet because both I've wanted to continue them and also they've wanted to continue. So, but I suspect it will come up. I wanted to ask you also about what's cutting edge, what's on the horizon, and in particular, you know, now at ASH meetings and ASCO meetings, there's obviously so much talk about immunotherapy, checkpoint inhibitors, CAR T therapy. How do these advances in our technology, how is that reflected in treating CML or how might it be? Yeah, I think that the two places that I think are the greatest need are the people who are refractory or intolerant to PKIs. And we all have those people in our practices. They're on their third and fourth PKI. Actually, I'm taking care of a gentleman now. He's young. He's in his 40s, and he's literally on his fourth PKI. He can't tolerate any of them because of thrombocytopenia, even though he yeah. feels fine. And we right. can't get him into remission. So when he has no, no able kinase mutations. So what is it about him? Like why? And there's, there are patients like that where you just, can't get them to tolerate therapy and get into remission. So I think that's a place where maybe boosting the PKI, adding one of like the, uh, there's several new drugs that are being developed that can augment the PKI effect, or are there ways of delivering, as you mentioned, sort of immunotherapy without having to do an allotransplant? You know, can you target the BCR-able protein in immunotherapy, that's definitely an active area that people are looking into. Hasn't mm. quite been a home run yet, as you know. Right. And then on the other side are the people who are really wanting to discontinue, as you know, about half of patients who are eligible for discontinuation will end up being able to be successfully remain off of therapy. So why, what is it about that? Like on the other, those are people that everyone would love to be in that group, but how do we increase the number of people who we can sort of push over that hump? How do we get that last mm-hmm. bit of BCR able mopped up? How do we make sure that people stay in remission afterwards? And I think that's another place where immunotherapies and augmented therapies might be helpful. So in my opinion, those are the two groups of patients that I think are most in need of additional help from our research partners. Excellent. Thank you. We've talked about some of the side effects and quality of life issues for uh, patients who are being treated for CML. Are there other toxicities that you've seen? 
Yeah, I think these medications are quite powerful. And although the main side effects, things like lowering of the blood counts, affecting the liver in adverse ways, common things like swelling or heart function or rashes, GI issues like nausea or vomiting or diarrhea, those are really very common across the whole family of medications. But I think that the drugs do have sort of profound effects on other aspects of people's the health as well. I think some people just have a reduced sense of well-being. They feel very tired. Fatigue is almost, I would joke actually that the package inserts for these drugs report an 80% rate of fatigue and the other 20% of people are lying. Just about everybody is fatigued on these medications. And I've certainly seen some unusual things that we can't always draw a direct correlation to the um, tyrosine kinase inhibitor, but there certainly seems to be an association I've had patients with kidney issues, renal insufficiency, certainly neuropathy, sometimes difficulty focusing, concentrating. A lot of patients worry about that. Even sometimes disordered sleep or, like I said, just sort of generally feeling poorly. I'm not sure I would call it malaise exactly, but just sort of a diminished sense of their well-being. So I wanted to use some of the rest of the time to talk about survivorship because this is a, it's a disease that has fortunately, a very high percentage of long-term survivors. And as I was thinking about talking with you today, I was thinking about the seasons of survivorship, which is a term that I've enjoyed thinking about. But there's acute survivorship when someone's first diagnosed, and then there is a period of extended survivorship of just observation, and then there's permanent survivorship, at least according to that model. Patients with CML, it's a little bit different. It's, it's the, term, the term that I'd like to think of is chronic survivorship. It's, it's living with the disease, though in this case, in, 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 often in remission. So I wanted to get your thoughts on that. How are patients, in terms of survivorship for patients with CML, how is it the same and how is it different than some of the other patients that you treat now? Yeah, that's a really great question and a really profound observation. And it's interesting. I've been involved in some survivorship work through some other organizations. And even the question of if somebody is continuing therapy, are they still in treatment? I mean, obviously, everybody, as soon as they're diagnosed with cancer, is considered a survivor. So that's certainly a big tent. But, you know, yeah, how do you think about these patients and how are they different? And there are certainly... They're sort of, um, in a way, they're in the middle of that Venn diagram of like there's like one group of people who are on therapy and dealing with side effects and costs and impact on their lives and their relationships and their jobs. And then there's another Venn diagram of people who are cancer survivors. They put it behind them. They're moving forward. They have late effects of therapy to deal with, but they're sort of moving on. And then CML is like right in between, right? They are actually facing all of those things um, every day. And I think um, it's complicated for them. Like, they're not quite sure how to think about themselves. And I think that uh, a lot of the issues that we typically think of as classic survivorship issues, like employment and relationships and childbearing and psychological, you know, coping, really is even more profound in, in patients with CML because they're dealing with all of that and also they're still on therapy. And it reminds me, too, just all the other things that happen in life, all the uh, positives and negatives uh, that we all face. So they're facing mm-hmm. their disease and as well as everything else. Absolutely. What do you find are sort of the most common things that when patients are willing to share their personal experience, what do they talk about in terms of the, ch- the special challenges that they face? Yeah, so I'm sure you've probably heard the expression golden handcuffs. And I actually think of this, I call them TKI handcuffs. I think that patients are really 
wedded to certain situations that they feel nervous to venture out of. So I have a, I take care of a woman who has a great job and great insurance and she's in her early sixties and she's very healthy otherwise and has been looking forward to retiring and maybe moving to Europe or traveling or kind of just exploring. And she feels like she can't leave her job because her insurance is really, she's fortunate that she has great insurance that covers the cost of her medications. And she's very worried that if she retires, that she won't be able to afford her medication. So she feels sort of trapped by her job. I have other patients, obviously, family planning is a huge issue, a big challenge, especially for women with this disease and creates a whole set of ethical challenges, financial challenges, as you undoubtedly know. Many reproductive technologies are not well covered by insurance. It's a whole other layer of cost and complexity. I take care of a man who was diagnosed with CML while he was incarcerated. And when he was let out of prison, they basically sent him out with a month of disadmib and no insurance. And we're like, all right, good luck. Like, you know, how do you, it's just really difficult to make, you know, thank goodness we have great social workers and we were able to get them, you know, taken care of with, you know, state health insurance and so forth. But it's just so complicated. People's lives are complicated enough as they are. People who, you know, are wanting to go back to work, but their medical assistance covers their drug, but their workplace insurance, they're not qualified until they've worked for 90 days or they have good prescription plans or, you know, so people who want to work and and can't, um, which is the opposite problem of the first patient. Yeah. But I've found that like, and and you get to really, really let into people's lives when you start talking about these issues. And I've found patients are very forthcoming. Like they really want to know what they can do to help themselves and, you know, how we can help them. This is a terrible disconnect between, um, you know, it really does create this whole layer of complications over these major decisions that people are making in their lives. So I have to say, in anticipation of meeting with you today on the phone, I had a chance to look at some of your articles, and some of them are beautiful essays on the experience of being a doctor. Thank you. So I wanted to ask you, you know, just your personal experience or just insights after doing this for many years as an oncologist, this experience of taking care of people with a life-threatening disease that's well-managed, but what are some of your thoughts, your feelings, your experience? You know, I think where I really connect to patients in this is in their fear and there's so much unknown. I think that's the hardest part. I take care of a lot of young people. You know, those are the people who tend to get referred in to tertiary care medical centers. And I think that the part that really breaks my heart, the hardest part, is when people haven't gotten good advice or haven't gotten good support. And, you know, it's a disease that can be managed so well, but when people are just lost and they don't know where to turn, I think that's really heartbreaking. And to me, I think that's the hardest part. And there's so much, like I said, this mixed message of like, oh, it's the good leukemia, you can take a pill, but oh, if it doesn't work, you need a bone marrow transplant. Like that's a very that's an agonizing dichotomy for people to hold in their minds. I'm actually reminded, I saw a young woman a couple of years ago who, she was like 20. She had been in college, presented with a high, you know, white count of 400,000, was diagnosed with CML in chronic phase. They started her on nilotinib, Mm -hmm. which as you know, is twice a day on an empty stomach. And so she came home, obviously with the leukemia diagnosis, she was taking her medicine. She went into a beautiful remission very quickly, like, you know, undetectable BCRA at three months. Wow. Happy ending. Everything's great. She goes back to school. She comes back for her follow-up testing, and now she's progressing again. Wow. And so they sent her to me for 
a transplant evaluation. Her mother was terrified and she was terrified. And, you know, here she's in college. She hasn't even started her life yet, looking at the possibility of an allotransplant. And as we're talking, it sort of occurred to me, like, okay, you're in college. Like, are you really taking this medicine twice a day on an empty stomach? And in the course of our conversation, it became clear that she actually really wasn't. She was taking it maybe once a day, maybe with a meal. And, you know, once she understood what she needed to do, it was like instantaneous. She went right back into remission. So talking to patients is, I don't mean to make myself out to be such a hero in the story, but I think that the point is talking to your patients and really understanding what their fears and motivations are so that you can meet them where they are Mm -hmm. is such an important part of taking care of these diseases. So to me, that's what motivates me, is like really getting what each person is about. So I have to say, as you're talking, I'm thinking to myself that, as I think often, how fortunate we are to be able to, to do the work that we do. Yeah. This is Dr. Ken Miller, and I want to thank all of you for listening uh, to this program. Also, especially want to thank Dr. Allison Lauren, who is, again, an associate professor at the University of Pennsylvania. Allison, this was a wonderful discussion, and uh, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed talking with you. For additional resources on chronic myeloid leukemia, be sure to check out our website, www.lls.org CML. And for a listing of our continuing education activities and healthcare professional resources, visit www.lls.org CE. For any questions or refer a patient, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. Information specialists provide personalized one-on-one support to help patients learn about their disease, treatment, financial, and other support resources. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.